Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Disinformation and Conspiracy, Tackling the Crisis of Trust. In the chair is Alistair Donald. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the first of the afternoon keynote sessions. I'm Alistair Donald. I'm the co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival. Um, in the keynote sessions over the last couple of days, we've been trying to look at the really big issues of our time. So we tackled identity yesterday. Uh, we've looked at tradition this morning. We've tr taken a look at fate. This afternoon, we want to uh, tackle one of the other big issues, which is trust. Perhaps uh, one of the fundamental questions of our time is, is, is kind of who do you trust and on what basis do you trust them? Uh, so this is an opportunity to delve into those questions a little bit. They already started, I noted, to come into uh, questions of trust very much came into the keynote session this morning. So maybe we can uh, uh, start to develop that conversation uh, this, this afternoon. They're kind of obviously quite complex questions. I mean, in, in, they, they appear in a kind of very everyday way. Uh, you know, how do you react to, act to strangers? How do you decide what food to eat? How do you decide if you're going to take a vaccine and uh, accept medical advice? So there's kind of all these everyday issues, but behind them is a you know a, a, a complex set of uh, uh, a complex understanding of how these things work their way through into into everyday life. So we kind of want to ask questions about trust, and they're especially uh, uh, important questions as now because we've got so much of a concentration on things like misinformation and conspiracy theories so we want to kind of look at the question of trust in the context of some of these issues and we might uh, delve into questions uh, such as what lies behind the kind of mainstreaming mainstreaming of concerns around misinformation and conspiracies just now uh, how do you differentiate uh, a healthy distrust a questioning of what's going on from a, a kind of conspiracy mindset uh, how should we deal with the collapse of trust? And what do we think of some of the measures that we constantly hear about just now as ways that potentially are uh, going to be used to deal with mistrust? Things like uh, online harms bill, for example, the kind of proliferation of fact-checking and so on and so forth. So I don't want to set the boundaries uh, to the discussion, but those are my, some of the things that we might look at. Let me uh, introduce my panel. And I don't want to sound conspiratorial here, but a couple of them haven't turned up, so I'm not quite sure what went on there. Um, yeah, I've lost Mo Lovett, who is here, uh, but has lost her voice completely. Uh, and Alison Pearson, unfortunately, is uh, ill, so couldn't make it. But let me introduce who we've got in the order that we're going to speak, because we've gained a, a speaker as well. So on my far right, uh, we have William Clouston who's party leader of the Social Democratic Party, having joined the SDP in 1982 uh, and campaigned for elections through the 1980s before departing for Pastures New for a while and then coming back uh, where he was established as leader in 2018. William is, uh, uh, holds degrees in urban planning and property management. He read philosophy uh, and he's uh, uh, you know, someone who you see in TV and appears regularly in the comment columns of newspapers. So welcome to you, uh, William. Uh, next, we'll hear from, on my immediate right, Dr. Tim Black. Tim's a columnist and book, uh, Tim is a columnist and the books and essays editor at Spiked, uh, which uh, is a fantastic section of Spiked, actually. I really recommend that people should read it, not least of all, actually, because Tim writes some fantastic uh, essays in, in, in there as well. 
Um, he appears, again, another one who appears widely in the media, uh, places like EU Observer, The Australian, The Independent, and La Republica. So welcome to you, Tim. Um, third, we'll hear from, on my immediate left, uh, Dr. Sean Lang, who's a historian, broadcaster, and playwright. He's senior lecturer in history at Anglia Ruskin University. He taught for many years in schools before moving into higher education. He's written uh, popular history books like British History for Dummies and the First World War for Dummies, and he broadcasts regularly as well. Um, and he's uh, a former honorary secretary of the Historical Association and now a fellow there. So welcome to you, uh, uh, Sean. And the speaker that we've gained, I'm really pleased to, I, I just took an opportunity to corner him last night and uh, he couldn't escape uh, and agreed to speak on the panel. Uh, a very warm welcome to Konstantin Kisten, uh, who's a Russian-British comedian, uh, podcaster, writer, and social commentator, another uh, regular uh, in the comment columns and on the media broadcast couches. Uh, he's the creator and co-host of uh, the YouTube show Trigonometry uh, that explores the big topics of the day in uh, long-form interviews. If you've not come across that, I highly recommend that you check it out because it really is a fascinating uh, uh, resource for exploring all sorts of different issues. So welcome to you, uh, uh, Constantine. Could we give them all a warm welcome, please? So, uh, they can all speak for about six minutes, and then, uh, as per usual, you'll be used to it now. We'll come straight out to the audience for questions, and we'll develop a conversation around some of these issues. So, William, over to you. Thanks very much, Alistair, and thanks very much uh, for the invite. Very kind. Um, I'm going to try and make about three or four points in my six minutes. Um, first point uh, is just about conspiracy theories in general. I think the interesting thing about them is that they are actually an appeal to rationalism. People have a desire to want to think things are explicable, uh, but in the real world, quite often they're not. Um, the reality, in fact, might be a lot worse than a conspiracy theory. Uh, stuff just happens. You know? So in relation to the pandemic, I'm, we don't know, but I'm more convinced by a lab leak and an accident than I am a pandemic. Uh, and in any case, uh, to think about the world in this way, a viral pandemic is not unusual. Uh, it's, it's actually normal. Uh, are we going to say that the Black Death was planned? I don't think so. Pan pandemics are all over the place. They just happen. Uh, therefore, I think largely government reaction to it and big corporations' reaction to it is just opportunistic. They've seen a pandemic and in some ways they've tried to secure goals that they may have had already. But it's not to say they were planning it, it's just they're reacting. That's the first point. Um, second point, uh, public trust, I think, has been eroded somewhat during the pandemic because on-balance decisions can't actually politically be presented as on-balance. So you, the government will get advice from their expert committees. Should we lock down? Should we not lock down? And often these will be, because there are costs on both sides, they'll be quite delicate decisions. But having made the decisions... Uh, over there at number 10, you'll get all the behavioral nudge people in, and they'll say, you've got to hammer this. You've got to say, it's really very important, and it wasn't unbalanced. I mean, it, it, that would only change if Johnson turned up to a press conference and said, actually, this was a really close-run thing. We're not really sure. It just it sort of can't happen. I don't have a solution to that, but that does erode public trust, because I think most of us know that some of, some of these decisions certainly are unbalanced. 
Which brings me to my third point, which is that, that I think a, a failure of the government to properly acknowledge uh, cost-benefit trade-offs, the costs of the suppression measures, I think has eroded trust. And those of us on our side of the net that have, have, have been skeptical about lockdowns, I think rationally so, um, have found it hard to, to, to put that across. But we, we were living in a world where we had basically nerve tag and sage arguing in a very narrow terms. Virologists saying, how would you deal with this virus? Well, we'll hammer it by a lockdown. But we never had uh, an equivalent uh, broader committee to properly calculate or assess the costs of the suppression measures now and in the future. And I think that's a major failure. Uh, I think that alone, I think it's the biggest policy failure or action failure in the pandemic, and I think it's contributed to a lack of trust. Um, as I say, the, the committees were looking at a very narrow single cause for a, for a single time, and they never did that. As for solutions, we can talk about that a bit later, but I'm, a lot of this, I think, to some extent, we're going to have to deal with a world in which it's natural, actually, among a population for some people to be slightly cons conspiratorial, others to largely accept the narrative, and others to have a different view. I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily. I think where we have had trouble in this pandemic is where some of us have applied you know, rational uh, debate and criticism of lockdowns and have been hammered for it. Um, Tim, your thoughts? Um, I found a very suspicious tissue on my chair, so if I keel over at some point in the next three minutes, you'll know why. Um, I think the rise of conspiracy theory is particularly worrying right now. Uh, it's logic that a group or a network of individuals is manipulating events towards their, uh, their evil ends. It does seem to be everywhere at the moment. Uh, even the idea, if you like, that we're being besieged by an epidemic of disinformation or even besieged by conspiracy theories often has a conspiratorial element to it. Uh, it's Russia and Putin and his infamous bot farms. I'm not quite sure what a bot farm is. It sounds very worrying. Or it's Chinese communist agents behind it all and so on. Um, and it's fair to say conspiracy theory emanates from every part of the political spectrum uh, right now. Uh, there are, of course, the widely uh, mocked and, uh, I guess, sort of performatively feared uh, conspiracy theories, uh, feared by mainstream uh, media and politicians and so on. I'm talking, I'm talking say, of the QAnon conspiracy theory, uh, which features devil-worshipping, uh, child-killing Democrats operating out, of, operating out of a downtown pizzeria and has fed into the election with stolen narrative, which I think some uh, Trump supporters still peddle. Uh, interestingly, Prince Andrew uh, now features in the uh, QAnon conspiracy theory, so it has something for a British audience as well now. Uh, there are the assorted COVID conspiracy theories. It was a bioweapon deliberately released by China or perhaps the US. It's being transmitted by 5G phone masks. It's a pretext for Bill, uh, for Bill Gates to microchip the entire population and no doubt subject us to interminable, uh, probably unprompted software updates. Uh, that's truly terrifying. Uh, on and on they go, the New World Order, the Great Replacement, uh, David Icke's Babylonian Brotherhood of Reptiles, the Plandemic, and so on. Now, they're the easy theories to dismiss. They're the kind of the fringe ones which melt in contact with reality. Uh, they're the kind of conspiracy theories which I think kind of right-thinking uh, uh, liberals cite as a sign of the madness uh, of their opponents. The conspiracy theories they perhaps even use to delegitimize uh, legitimate criticism, to, de to uh, delegitimize their opponents, be it Trump supporters or critics of lockdown. 
because I think they're also, they're, they're also the kind of mainstream uh, media conspiracy theories, the ones it's okay to recite on, on the London dinner party circuit. I, I don't know why I've said London dinner party circuit. I'm not sure that's an actual thing. I don't think it's an actual circuit, but you get the idea. Uh, I'm thinking perhaps of Russia uh, orchestrating Brexit and uh, you know, uh, organizing Trump's presidential victory, of Putin using Trump as a Manchurian candidate, uh, not using kind of psychedelic kind of engineering uh, as, as in the original novel and film, but uh, using a, a, apparently a video featuring golden showers. I'm talking of the idea that dark money greases the palms of uh, the manipulative few, be it Aaron Banks or Darren Grimes uh, and all the other people that got Brexit done. And it's all nonsense. It was it's been dismissed by uh, the Mueller report. It was uh, dismissed by the Met Police. It's been dismissed by the Information, Committee, uh, Information Commissioner. And yet some still cleave to those conspiracy theories. Some still think they're acceptable. I notice at the moment that Channel 4 still features an advert with Cambridge Analytica. Uh, it just says Cambridge Analytica scandal. It's to suggest that that indicates the uh, high quality of uh, Channel 4's output, despite the fact that Cambridge Analytica is a widely debunked uh, scandal and conspiracy theory. Uh, and this, I think, is a wretched state of affairs. Uh, the preeminence of the conspiratorial mindset uh, corrodes and eats away, I think, at the public, uh, the public sphere. It eats away and corrodes, I think, any sense of social solidarity. Or to be more exact and to allude to the title of this, uh, uh, this session, it draws on and exacerbates a climate of social distrust. It turns democratic decisions you disagree with uh, from acts carried out by fellow citizens into plots uh, engineered by evil actors. It turns political arguments, political debates, into a kind of Manichaean moralistic conflict between good and evil, or to use the synonyms for evil right now, racists, paedophiles, misogynists, and so on. Um, and it does that because it means that the, uh, the person that sees the conspiracy, it means that they are the possessor of the truth. They know what really lies behind someone's words and actions and democratic decisions. Uh, they see an evil force operating everywhere. And when you start to sort of conceive of all political debate, all sort of, uh, all political argument uh, as a, in terms of a battle, you know, against evil, that renders any compromise, any agreement absolutely impossible. You know, you can't strike a deal with evil. It doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, and it also, it, it also means you cast the majority of the population just as sheep, sheep or uh, dupes or worse still just stupid or uneducated as people that are just going to be easily seduced by uh, the kind of conspiracy uh, theories out there. Uh, it also means that you, nothing can be taken uh, at face value anymore. Nothing can be taken in good faith and no argument, no position, no decision because nothing for the conspiratorially minded is what it seems. There is always some kind of nefarious power operating behind the scenes. You know, it could be George Soros, or it could be Russian dark money. And when it comes to disasters, when it comes to, uh, you know, entirely contingent events like the, the pandemic, the conspiratorial mindset, uh, and, and William actually alludes to this, it almost it becomes like a parody of enlightenment thought. It reduces a complex contingent event to an intentional act uh, on the part of someone or some network. It generates scapegoats, therefore it generates witches and it generates zero understanding. Uh, so just to conclude, what to do? I think if there's one thing that's worse than the predominance of conspiratorial uh, mindset itself, I think it's the proposals to tackle it. Uh, that regulation usually outsourced to big tech companies, um, and it's, you know, it's just such a mind-bogglingly, mind -boggling, I can't say mind-bogglingly stupid approach. Um, the hardened conspiracy theorist thinks the powers that be are conspiring against him, that they want to silence his or her, tr his, his or her truth. 
And then banning or censoring uh, him or her only confirms their conspiracy. It validates their victimhood. It, it, I can't think of a worse way to, uh, uh, to encourage conspiracy theorizing than banning them. Uh, so, Last minute, Tim. Uh, finally, what to do more positively? I think the only solution is just more speech, more engagement, in some cases more mockery. Uh, not because you're going to change the mind of Alex Jones or, or David Icke or even Carol Cadwaller. Uh, that's absolutely impossible. Their minds have just been shrunk to kind of shriveled uh, dogma. Uh, you need to challenge conspiracy theories. You need to speak openly and feel freely to criticize them because you might change the minds of those in or around them. And for that, you've got to trust others. You've got to trust in your own judgment, and you've also got to trust in the judgment of others. So that's where the trust comes in. Uh, hopefully, there'll be more to say about that in a bit. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Sean, your thoughts. Thank you. Um, well, as you heard, I'm a historian, and in a debate like this, what often happens is that you have the, you know, the main debaters, and then you have someone like me, and they sort of say, oh, well, you know, Sean, can you put it in a bit of a historical context? And so I give you a bit of historical context and say, thank you, that was very interesting, and then you go back to the main debate. I think there are actually some important pearls of wisdom, and indeed possibly some guidance to be found when you do look at this historically. History obviously presents plenty of examples of actual conspiracies, but also um, plenty of false ones. In other words, conspiracy theory is nothing new. And if I was going to focus on one, and I am going to, uh, it's the 17th century. And that, that provides us with two uh, examples, one of which is well-known, and indeed Tim mentioned it briefly. The other is less well-known, but ought to be better. I'll keep that for a second. The one which is well-known is witchcraft and witch-hunting. And that is particularly relevant because the term witch hunt is widely used in our political discourse. I mean, it usually means any investigation into me that I would rather would shut up and leave me alone, but nevertheless, that's what you might call the Trumpian school of thought. Um, but it was used, for example, uh, about Kathleen Stock. I saw uh, some of the comments about that saying this is a pure witch hunt, and there are plenty of other examples. Usually people use that term in the wrong way because they're assuming that if you call it a witch, witch hunt, that you're suggesting that the thing doesn't exist. That's not right, and that's not the real meaning of the term. Witchcraft exists. There are people who call themselves witches to this day. It's a sort of form of religion. What's imaginary are the sort of powers of witches. Uh, you know, witches, sorry Harry Potter fans, cannot fly <laughs> through the air, uh, cannot sort of inflict harm by sticking pins into dolls. But there are um, lessons actually from the past when you look at how it was dealt with. A small detail, but more important than it might sound. Witches in England were not burnt, they were hanged. And the reason for that was because it was treated as a crime in common law, rather than in other countries where it was seen as a religious crime for which you were burnt at the stake. And that means that actually in England, you wouldn't think this from Blackadder or Monty Python, but the number of witchcraft pro uh, prosecutions was relatively small. Uh, particularly compared with continental Europe and, and indeed Scotland and uh, relative to the population strength of time. Why so? It's because English courts asked for evidence. And um, so incidentally, perhaps unexpectedly, did the Spanish Inquisition, which also has a very good record on this. Um, and it's the exceptions which are well known, which as it were prove the point. The biggest exception, the one that everyone has heard of, is Matthew Hopkins, the self-styled, that's significant, witch-finder general. He was operating in the 1640s, which is during the English Civil War. And the reason that matters is because he was operating in a situation where normal authority, normal trusted authority, i.e. the king, had collapsed. 
In other words, you had a sort of power vacuum, or rather better, an authority vacuum, into which he inserted himself. I say he was self-styled. He, he made up his title. It wasn't given to him. He simply claimed to have a commission from Parliament, which he didn't, and that he claimed to have a title, which find a general, that he didn't. Um, he, I, so normal authority had collapsed. He identified a deeply held fear of a terrible power, the devil, from which no one was safe. Bear all this in mind, because I think this is of direct relevance to us now. This fear touched off a highly emotionally driven response. Reason, rationality were not only thrown out of the window, they were seen as suspect, evidence of complicity. The need to identify and drive out the evil was seen as all-important. And the normal rules of evidence and procedure were thrown out because there was no effective supervision. Remember, the normal authority had collapsed and was seen as a hindrance to the cause. It's not the only example. You can get a very similar situation in the French Revolution. When authority was re-established and proper procedures put back in place, then the fraud was exposed relatively easily. But it takes time, and you have to look and recognize the guilty don't always get their deserts. It seems to me there are obvious modern parallels. In some of the well-known um, uh, child abuse conspiracy stories, um, going back a bit, I know, to Orkney and Cleveland, um, many of the... Um, when, well, indeed, there's one I'll come to in a second because it relates to the other um, 17th century example. Because the second one, not so well-known, but it ought to be. This is the Popish plot. Titus Oates, if that's a name that means something to you, you'll know where I'm going. But if it isn't, Titus Oates was a liar. Titus Oates came up with a completely fabricated conspiracy plan, which he said was that the, the Catholics were going to launch a, a sort of assassination plot and take over the country. Um, and it was based on the irrational fear of Catholics at the time. There's a lot of historical detail which I don't need to go into. He presented himself as a victim, as a victim of Catholics himself. And he then exposed this supposed conspiracy. 22 people were put to death, on, basically, on his completely false um, evidence. And 17th century style of execution, not sort of nice, quick um, hanging or anything like that. And all on the word of one man. Does that ring modern parallels? I'm thinking Operation Midlands. I'm thinking, you know, all on the basis of Nick. And what do we see there? But the police suspending the normal procedures of, of their own profession declaring that these accusations are, you know, were credible and true. True? The police are not courts. They are not judges or jury. But there we are. The normal procedures were being thrown out of the window. I'm no expert in policing, but even I can see that if you place so much credence on the, on the testimony of one man, then you are falling in, into a conspiracy theory. So what I'm su suggesting is that actually the solution certainly doesn't lie in regulation. I entirely agree with Tim. But you can have trust in normal processes of rational um, analysis, um, weighing of evidence, and, and applying the normal procedures, because they're there for a reason, and they've evolved over a long time. There are lessons to learn from history. I wish there weren't, actually, but there are. Mm -hmm. Keep calm, keep cool, and keep checking. Brilliant.
Thanks, Sean. That was really useful, I think, and we can explore some of those kind of historic parallels in the modern uh, uh, era uh, in, the, in the conversation. Uh, Constantine. Uh, yeah, thank you for have, drafting me in at the last moment, Alistair. <laughs> uh, with Alison Pearson and Mo Love at Missing, I have the unenviable task of replacing two women at once. Now, um, <laughs> uh, it's good to be here. Uh, first of all, I'm glad Tim went through a list of all the sort of stupid QAnon and all this other stuff that I think reasonable people wouldn't believe. Uh, and it, to me, that part Part of it comes down on my favorite stat, which is 7% of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. There will always be people who, who believe silly stuff, right? But I think we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if it was just those people. And I think one of the things that's happened over the last five years, in fact, why don't we just talk about what we're actually talking about? Think back to 2015. How many of you would say, by a show of hands, that your faith in the media has been enhanced by the last six years? Enhanced. Right, one, one, two, three people. How many of you would say that your faith in politics has been enhanced by the last six years? Right. Three people again. How many of you would say that your trust in big tech social media companies has been enhanced in the last six years? This is what we're talking about. We, when, whenever people talk about we need to rebuild trust in our institutions, I've got no idea what the hell they're talking about. What we need to do is rebuild the institutions so they're trustworthy, right? And what they're doing instead over the last five years is destroying trust. And the only people who are now saying we need to rebuild trust in the institutions is the people in those institutions that keep lying to you, right? That's the only people who are saying that. So I wanted to get that point out of the way. Um, thank you very much. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to talk, we've dismissed all the QAnon and all this other stuff. It's just bullshit and it's you know, ridiculous and blah, blah, blah. But let's talk about some other conspiracy theories. There was a stat that came out recently that, f that the majority of people who watch mainstream news in America believe that your risk of being hospitalized if you catch COVID is 50%. The actual risk is 2%. Right? Is that a conspiracy theory? How did that happen? How did we go to a position where people believe by watching the media that the they exaggerate the risk by a factor of 25? How did that happen? Is that a conspiracy theory? I would argue that has happened in some way. When people believe something crazy, and that is a crazy thing to believe, that's happened for a reason. That's not accidental, right? So that's the first thing I would say. I'm getting a lot of applause. Just save them for the end. Thank you. Um, who remembers the Hunter Biden story before the last presidential election in America, right? On the eve of the election, for those of you who don't know, the son of, the, of one of the candidates, Joe, uh, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, was credibly accused by a credible publication, the New York Post, of being involved in corruption, prostitution, drug use, and all of this stuff. The big tech companies suppressed it. The media suppressed it. On the, on the argument, by the way, Tim, as you said, that it was Russian disinformation. The election happens, and it turns out it wasn't Russian disinformation, right? This Hunter Biden really is a legend. Now. <laughs> Right? So is that a conspiracy theory when that happened? Again, my point is the media are not being trustworthy. Um, now, some of you read the thread I wrote a long time ago, not a long time, a few months ago, and um, uh, a Twitter thread that became an article about why people are vaccine hesitant. I'm not going to rehash all, all the arguments now, but just, I'll just condense it into a sentence for you. We've just had a week or a couple of weeks in which the leaders of every major party in this country, political party, have been unable to define what a woman is. 
I, I can help you with that. You're two. <laughs> and those people are telling you to follow the science. I mean, are we going to believe those people after that? I don't think so, right? So they're undermining trust in themselves by doing all of this stuff. I don't think it's a surprise that people are then questioning some of the narratives. That sort of makes sense to me. Uh, and I'll tell you a couple of quick, um, quick things about, uh, about this. My father was a biochemical engineer and a biologist, thanks. One minute. Um, and he made vaccines in the Soviet Union. He made vaccines. If my father was to put his thoughts about this current vaccine on the internet, he would be called an anti-vaxxer. A man who used to make vaccines would be called an anti-vaxxer. Is that because my dad has become a conspiracist in his old age? No, it's because what we now call conspiracy has been expanded way beyond the remit of that word. Anyone who asks questions, anyone who says, it's a new thing, maybe we should wait and find out, that is now a conspiracy theory, right? Because we no longer operate in the world of science. What they're telling you when they say follow the science, what they mean is follow public health guidance, right? It's a completely different thing. So that is the thing, the definition of conspiracy theorist has expanded. Now, before I finish, I'll tell you one story. Very quickly. Very quickly. Before I was a comedian, before I started trigonometry with Francis Foster, I was a translator, and I, I was pretty good. I worked with some of the biggest banks, legal firms, etc., in the country. And one time, I got asked to interpret for one of the richest men in Russia who was coming over to the UK to speak to one of the richest men in the UK. And I won't give you the names because I like my tea. Um, <laughs> and the conversation they were having was uh, what the Russian guy said, oh, did you know, uh, English uh, rich man, that uh, we, were, we had a lecture in a Moscow university and this Russian official said that me and you and people like us, we sit on the 45th floor of the Empire State Building and control the fate of the world. And they both had a really good laugh about it. And then the conversation went on about half an hour later and the Russian guy said, well, you know, I've got this problem, I've got this PR issue that I need to get fixed. And the English guy said, oh, that's no problem, I'm about to have dinner with all the editors of the major newspapers in the UK. Now, uh, did, that, did that convince me that the Jews are, you know, organizing some kind? No, right, because I'm not a member of Momentum. But um, <laughs> what I am saying, though, is we are supposed to live in a democracy. The idea of democracy is one person, one vote. Now, if you live in a society where you know rich and powerful people have way more influence than you do, that is going to influence how you perceive the entire media landscape, the political landscape, and all of that. Um, I'm about to be chucked out, I think, get yes. a red card. <laughs> uh, so I'll wrap up there. Thank you very much. Trying to keep my card in the <laughs> Thanks. Plenty of time to come back to stuff. So let's come straight out for some questions and uh, kick off the conversation. So the first hand I saw was there. It does seem to me that the um, uh, that conspiracies have always been about uh, a sense of fear and usually a fear either of something that's real. So in the past, uh, it was often, you know, in, in, in the modern period, right-wing fear of Jews or anarchists associating them with the left, or uh, with a fear of um, not being able to do anything and powerlessness. And it strikes me today that the discussion of conspiracies is all about a sense of powerlessness, powerlessness all around, which directly intersects with the issue of trust. 
And whilst we talk about it in institutions, and I like Constantine's point um, about creating new institutions, but I think where we need to start is in trust with one another and how we think about our fellow humans, that sense of humanity, right? A sense of uh, agency, rationality, reason, and that you need to convince them to win ideas in open debate because all too often, and often people that challenge things like lockdowns or vaccine passports are often talking about fellow citizens with contempt and disgust. There's a kind of fatalism, uh, similar to the kind of fatalism in conspiracies that you think it's all being planned and being done. I agree that it's much more terrifying in some ways that there isn't a big plan you can just shine a light on, but you have to win hearts and minds, and that takes trust and a belief in one another and that is the way that we can also, in, the, in, in shining the light on these ideas, uh, indicate the best way forward. But that takes confidence in our own ideas and in one another. Okay, thanks. Who's got the microphone down here? Obviously, the inventor of the printing press, which I thought would, as an analogy, would be the closest thing to the invention of the internet. The inventor said that if he thought that if you could get a Bible in the hand of every person, then there'd be no more crime. But the most popular book was the Bible, yeah. and the second most popular book was identifying and killing witches. So you can see how the fake news and the conspiracy theories go back even then, and they're circulated almost just as much, and it took hundreds of years for people to realize that maybe they're not actual witches, and well, not actual magical, powerful witches. So do you think there's a way to combat these uh, conspiracy theories it didn't, and it not take 200 years. <laughs> okay. But perhaps in positive note, although pandemic and propaganda was harsh, but now we when we see firsthand how powerful propaganda can be from uh, state media or, or whoever you got your news from, is that now not working as an ultimate antidote for future propaganda? And we would caution much more from whom we get our news and what we believe or who we believe. Um, I've been a fan of conspiracy theories for years. Back in the days when they used to be fun and you'd read them on the internet back in the 90s. You know, um, and then what's happened is over the years you do start to get a tally together where you start thinking, oh, could more of these are a low resolution view of the future that it provided to us. So, for example, back in the 90s people would be concerned of a microchip population linked to a global computer one of the things they talk about. And I remember thinking, well, that's ridiculous. That'll never, ever happen. And now we're debating whether or not we should be tracked and traced and if we should have this, uh, you know, ID card system that will back up perhaps a social credit system. And there does come a point where you really, I start to think it's intellectually dishonest to ignore counter-narratives and call them conspiracy theories. Well, thanks, panel. Um, I'm, I've made some notes here. Basically, my view is that there's two wellsprings for conspiracy theories. One is dishonest communication from people in power, and the second is the fact that they exist. So I've got a little list here, all of which are, so far as I can tell, true. CIA drug running in Los Angeles, no weapons of mass destruction, but massive profits for, for, um, for arms um, companies, drug regulators and the opioid crisis, death toll about 500,000, everyone should watch the HBO special Crime of the Century, Edward Snowden revealing NSA surveillance, assassination plot against Julian Assange, um, explosion of heroin in Afghanistan's after the war, uh, Pandora Papers, HSBC 
laundering drug okay. money. Okay. Small wars. Be, I'll, I'll make a point. Yeah. Small wars. <laughs> You've made some market weapons. No, I haven't. Not yet. Jimmy Savile, uh, pedophilia. No, Basically, sorry. Can you just make the point? Is what I'm saying is everything is cra a crazy conspiracy theory until it's actually revealed. And this is why people um, have to kind of extrapolate from what they're hearing to figure out what's going on. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to take one more with, from the person that's got the microphone there. So just before Christmas last year, I was reading an article on BBC reporting on the um, Spy B, the infamous uh, behavioural scientist committee uh, advising the government. And it was the, the article about the, the dangers of board games and things like that because you pass counters around. And uh, the scientists were saying, well, the problem is, you know, there's this thing called the intimacy paradox, right? The problem is that people think that because they're very close to people, then they pose less danger to them, and actually the opposite is true, right? And I thought this concept of the intimacy paradox was very interesting, quite alarming, but um, because you can see the logic in terms of, you know, transmitting a virus, at the same time, um, it did take, seem to take the problem of trust to uh, a new level. Um, in the sense that you know, lack of trust in politics and the media has been around for a very, very long time. Um, but what was sort of being said here, and, and the whole process of the lockdown was about kind of encouraging that distrust of people, you know, the closest to you, because they're the, most, the people most likely to infect you. So it had a very strong symbolic dimension. And um, the, the, the problem that I've got in trying to kind of get a handle on all of this is that that whole experience was so disorientating, you know, where the, sh the ground is shifting, you know, under your feet the whole time, and there's that sort of sense of all those relationships that you took for granted, all the knowledge that you took for granted, all the past ways of doing things were, were suddenly discredited and, and presented as risky, made then, I think, a, a climate that was ripe for kind of disorientation and conspiratorial thinking which then intersected with what you might, I suppose, call, for want of a better term, a, a crisis of explanation. You know, I'm a sociologist. I try and explain things. But, you know, you, you kind of look at something like lockdown and you say, well, it wasn't an accident. I don't know why these things were, but it's, it's not accidental if you have a policy to shut schools and put kids in their rooms and everything else. Then th this stuff was done. But you've got no understanding as to, to why it was done. And I, that's the difficulty that I have at the moment in trying to kind of get a handle on this. How do we kind of explain that certain things didn't just happen, but at the same time, the, the end goal seems to me as, as far away and as confused as, I don't even know if there is one. Okay, thanks. So panel, I'm gonna to come to you for some comments. W William, is there anything that you want to pick up on out of? Out? I think quite often conspiracy theory is actually a form of therapy for the people engaging in them. So a good example is, is Trump derangement syndrome, uh, you know, 2016. A lot of very, very intelligent people, and we know that intelligence and wisdom doesn't always coincide, but a lot of very intelligent people were convinced that something had gone wrong with that election. Uh, you know, Americans just wouldn't vote for Trump, something wrong. And a lot of the establishment in New York, Washington, and Los Angeles just couldn't accept what had happened. So there had to be the Russians, there had to be something. And it was a derangement, and it still went on. But really, what they were engaging in was, was something happened that they didn't like, and a form of therapy was to say, well, it, it oughtn't to have happened, and these are the reasons why. So literally, it was a sort of form of therapy. As to what we do about it, um, I think good, good faith debate 
what we're doing now is, is, is an antidote to it to some extent. I think politicians have to be braver and have a, a better vocabulary and, and there's got to be more honest uh, politics, basically. And, and one of the problems... No, honestly, it's a supply-side issue. It's a supply-side issue because a lot of the people that get up, a lot of politicians get it in the neck, but they don't have the vocabulary to, to, to talk about it. That's the, and you only had to look at the press conferences every night. They never got off first base. They were, and the press questioning was so abysmal, they never, often, quite often never got the opportunity. The press were trying to just snag them or score a cheap little point. So it was very, very poor on both sides. And just to go to one solution, which I maybe you think might work, but I don't think it will, is fact-checking. Because there's a lot of coverage bias in the press, huge coverage bias. And the BBC has a fact-checker. And last summer, when BLM was happening, they never fact-checked, uh, is there a racial disparity in police shootings in the United States? R.G. Freyer had done the work with a team of economists in Harvard, and there isn't. There's lots of other problems, but there wasn't. They couldn't, they never fact-checked. Why cowardice? Because it didn't say what they wanted. So you can have as many fact-checkers as you like, but unless they're doing their job, it's pretty useless. Tim, pick up on, 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 on what you will. But um, what, what, one of the questions I thought, um, Sean said that... that uh, the, the problem is the collapse of authority. And I wondered, it, it, what, how do you see the relationship between authority and trust? How, how do you explain that connection? Uh, also, I'm glad you've asked me that question. Um, I, th I, will, I will try to answer that in a second. Uh, the, I just want to come back to the, uh, the, the statement from the audience about uh, counter-narratives and stuff. That, you know, that obviously, there was nothing wrong with challenging the official narrative uh, on events. There's nothing wrong with questioning and being sceptical towards, uh, towards the official narrative of events. Particularly, not particularly, um, there's nothing wrong with that because you are both, therefore, both you and the person you're questioning or the body you're questioning are engaged in a mutual pursuit, one would have thought or hoped, of the truth, of establishing what exactly the facts are. Uh, the difference between that type of questioning and the the conspiracy theorist approach is that the conspiracy theorist has no interest in establishing the truth through uh, engaged debate or argument because they already know the truth in advance. They already have a fixed idea about exactly what is happening and why it's happening. And I think we have to draw that distinction between um, a skeptical pursuit of the truth and the conspiracy theorist's projection or invention or, fa or I, I guess, fantasized idea of the truth. That's why also you can never persuade or argue with uh, someone, well, uh, argue with a conspiracy theorist, because they already know, beyond all doubt, what the truth is. There's no way, no way you could possibly argue with a conspiracy theorist. Um, the question of, um, of authority and, 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 and trust, um, it, do you know what, I'm, I'm, going to be, I'm going to struggle to answer that in, in the next minute, but I think it is worth pointing out, because the pandemic did bring it to the fore, was the way in which, um, because politicians basically outsourced uh, political judgment to the science, to scientists, because the uh, politicians didn't feel they had the authority themselves to make decisions and to explain them in political terms, to say, this is why we are imposing a lockdown, it meant they therefore almost like put the scientists forward uh, and sort of leached off the authority of the scientists, mm -hmm. hence the phrase, follow the science, to justify decisions which should only really have been justified in political terms and therefore could have been argued against and debated in political terms. The use 
the science in that sense, not, well, it was coercive and, author and, and, and authoritarian in the worst possible sense, but it then simultaneously undermined the authority of the science when it actually matters. So you have science politicized in the first instance, and then when the government would like people to take the vaccines uh, and, saying, listen, and say, listen to the science, you know, people can legitimately say, uh, hold on a second, the science has already been politicized, it's already been instrumentalized and exploited. Uh, why should I trust them? Okay, good. Sean, anything that you want to pick up on? Yes, because um, the gentleman down there asked me um, specifically, is there a way to sort of combat um, the, the, the sort of belief in witches that, that came out and pointing out that the Bible and hand, handbooks about witchcraft were published at the same time, both very popular? And I think the answer lies in something that no one's mentioned yet, but is absolutely central to what we're talking about, which is the concept of evil. Because in the, in the past, there was a very, very clear concept of evil. That's what the devil was. It was an evil force. I've never yet heard of, someone put me right if I'm wrong here, of a conspiracy theory about which is benign. I've never heard that there are lots of people pl plotting our own good. They're always plotting something bad. And we always assume that uh, whoever it is that is doing the plotting has got a sort of evil heart and we never really stop and think what that means. Are there evil people? Is there such a thing as evil? Because all of these, all the debate actually, is basically all premised on the existence of a thing called evil that these plots are trying to promote and that we are trying to combat. And there's a debate for, you know, a big one for an, 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 another day, but a lot of this is, is often related to Hitler. And, um, and, and let's lance the boil. Shall we bring him in here? Um, excellent book by Richard Evans, only just come out, called The Hitler Conspiracies, about the various um, conspiracy theories around Nazism and, uh, and, and, and Hitler and about you know, the, the Jewish conspiracies put forward by the Nazis and then conspiracy theories about you know, what happened to Hitler after his death and so on. Very, and it's not too long either. It's, it's always good. I have no commission, incidentally. But I think that question of evil, which in the past people were absolutely open about, they had a sort of tangible sense of it. The devil was a sort of form of evil which walked the earth and was there in a room like this or round the corner or in your, you know, your locality or indeed even your, in your home. We still have it, but we don't address it. And I think that needs to be brought out. Okay. I hope that's an answer. Constantine, any, anything to add into this, this conversation? I'm particularly interested, and, and the thing that I find really quite difficult to... Um, to unravel really is, is that people constantly talk about the need to rebuild trust, but mm. it doesn't seem, a lot of the time, it doesn't seem anything more than asserting that you want to trust people more. So kind of, what is the foundation of trust? Well, it's not asserting that you want to trust people more. As I see it at the moment, it's people who are untrustworthy asserting that others should trust them more. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's the media who are telling us that we need to rebuild trust in the media after they keep lying to us. So that doesn't seem to me a, a successful, viable strategy. Um, but I didn't expect to be talking about evil, Sean, but since you bring it up, I think it's interesting that you say that. One of my favorite books as a kid was uh, Picnic by the Roadside by the Strugatsky brothers. And there's a scene in that book where uh, there's essentially an alien invasion of a particular thing. And one man is saying to the other, why are you fighting these aliens? They're here to do good for us. And he says, I fight them because I fear they're here to do good as they understand it. Uh, and I think there is also that element to conspiracy theories about depopulation and all this stuff. There is a group of people out there who want to do good as they understand it, which is good for them and not good for everybody else. So I, I think that it's more complicated than just pure 
evil, I would say. Uh, I'm glad that the gentleman in the back who was censored uh, terribly from getting the full list out of, of the correct uh, conspiracy theories uh, did point that out. I think it's very important that you did. I also think that just because a lot of conspiracy theories are true, we've got to be careful that we don't take that to mean that all conspiracy theories are, are true. And I think that's important to remember as well. Um, they're not all true. Uh, and as I said, I think at the beginning of my, my, my bit, um, uh, there are conspiracy theories which are just silly and ridiculous and we ought to be able to separate them from the things that actually ought to be questioned. And where that line is, that's why free speech is so important and the, the ability to have this conversation is so important because that line is found in conversation. That line cannot be Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and the big media and whatever going, this is where the line is between what's true and what's not true because we know they, they've been involved in the past and things that have been covered up. So that's why these conversations, these discussions are so important because that's how we find out. It's through that, it's through the sharing information, etc. cetera. Uh, and if I may, one, uh, one, yeah. one final point. I'm glad William brought up Trump derangement syndrome because I think this is a point that I wanted to make. I didn't get a chance. I think the experience of a lot of people, and I was never one of these people who was on the Trump train. I've always tried to be on the truth train as much as I can. I tried to look at things logically and objectively. The experience of a lot of people, and I think it's not entirely incorrect, is that when a certain portion of society comes out with conspiracy theories, they're demonized, they're shamed, they're smeared, they're, they're attacked, they're called evil, etc., etc. When the other side comes out with conspiracy theories about how Trump got elected or whatever else you want to look at, those conspiracy theories are celebrated, spread in the mass media, uh, and we're all supposed to believe them. And if you don't, you're a conspiracy theorist, right? So. I think the bias in, in the mainstream conversation to someone who tries to look at it from the center is just so blatantly obvious. Uh, and I think until we address that, I don't think anyone should have any faith in the media, personally. Okay, thanks. Right, let's come back out again. Yeah, um, thank you very much. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst who 20 years ago taught, uh, as part of a training course for trainees, taught the John F. Kennedy case and noted it was getting extremely difficult and eventually it became impossible to teach it because so many had swallowed the conspiracy theorist nonsense to the extent that nothing would convince them, which several of the panelists have um, made that point. Um, my question is, um, are there any institutions which you think have been, including media, which have been particularly good or particularly bad at reinforcing the facts in order to answer the skeptics, accepting that they will not be able to make any impact at all on the conspiracy theorists. I would just add the gentleman who made the point on the panel about Trump and golden showers, I would refer the audience to the plot of the 1983 book, Icon, by Graham Masterton. Wow. Okay, there you go. So, yes. Thank you. Um, so, a major concern about, if we talk about trust in institutions, a major concern, uh, other than conspiracies, is... Uh, is lobbying and conflicts of interest uh, and how they can play mm. in the decisions made by uh, big institutions. Uh, 
uh, but especially in the government, but also in the media. So I just want to ask the panel, what role did lobbying and conflict of interest play specifically in the COVID response from the UK government? And what is the long-term solution uh, in terms of uh, conflict of interest and lobbying uh, for, for the purpose of build, rebuilding uh, trust in these institutions? So I just thought with everything that's going on at the moment and being here, going to all these different lectures, it seems to me we've got a bit of a perfect storm situation. Like everything seems to be coming from different angles and it's not just one place. And I was just wondering with this particular issue with um, kids and, and our, how the way we educate people and what's going on in universities and the whole idea of objective truth mm. is we don't seem to have much of a kind of thread of that. There's a sort of like lived experience and you can have your own truth. Even my daughter comes home from school with her books marked and the teacher doesn't write whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> So I'm kind of saying to her, no, that's actually not true. And she's going, oh, the teacher didn't tell me that because they're just trying to be quite nice and we need to listen to all their feelings and everything. And I just wondered whether we've just got a larger problem of actually being able to, from an early age, just say, no, that's actually wrong and not true, rather than pandering and saying, oh, maybe it is true because you felt it to be true. <laughs> you know, this, this kind of thing. So. Thank you. Useful. Um, yes, please. Uh, um, <clears throat> I get very nervous with the characterization of the media as always lying to us. It sounds like something a conspiracy theorist would say. <laughs> um, it suggests a uniformity of purpose that I don't think is there, or you know, some kind of collective uh, knowledge, or you know, it sounds conspiratorial. It worries me. Hi. Yes. So I, I just wanted to say that I can't believe we've got this far in this discussion without anybody saying COVID origins. Um, it, it seems remarkable to me. Um, when you have that little truth around, conspiracy is just, theories are inevitable. Yeah. Um, when I saw, that, when I first heard about the pandemic, I realized that this was gonna be politicized instantly because of the American election. And so therefore, I decided the only thing to do was to read all of the virology papers that came out of Wuhan from about 2014 forward. I'm not a virologist, I'm an artist, but I used as much, uh, I'm also a writer, and I used everything I know about English to read those papers. The abstracts are not that complicated. It's blatantly obvious that if they didn't leak this, they could leak the next one and it would be worse because that's just a matter of fact. It's written down in the scientific language. Um, not a single journalist was able to tell us the truth about the possibility, not the fact, but the possibility it's a leak. Our government has said nothing in our parliament. Four million people dead, and we wonder why conspiracy theories are circulating. It's, it's just nonsense, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I think our government and our journalists who in, interestingly are not scientific. They're nearly all English graduates, humanities graduates, and th sociological theorists. Um, and uh, our, our scientific journalists failed us on that. Okay, thanks. Is it not in fact the government that are one of the biggest conspiracy theorists during this whole COVID pandemic? And are they not also trying to create witches in a few weeks, there will be a whole lot of care home workers mm. sacked because they haven't been vaccinated. 
the government's trying to create an us and them and a divide between the vaccinated and those that are unvaccinated. Although many of those care home workers will have caught COVID in the first or second wave and be more immune than many people that have had the vaccine. Okay, so I'm going to come back to you, Constantine. So we're just going to take some comments and we'll come back out. I'll be very brief. Uh, thank you. So I'm glad the gentleman's made that point about the media always lying, because I'm glad you said that, because I, I don't think I said the media are always lying. I hopefully didn't say that, right, because now I'm going to get cancelled. But um, no, I don't mean the media are always lying, right? I don't open the weather report on the BBC and go, this is fucking bullshit. Do you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I, that's Real not what news. I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the media have lied about really important things over a period of time, quite consistently. So when they talk about something important, it's harder to take it at face value. That's all I'm saying, right? And I think, would, would, that, would that be a fair point to say that that's happened? Yeah? Uh, so that's what I'm saying. And the, the lady, I think you made a great point about the origins of COVID. Obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, this was something you're not allowed to discuss. And we had a video from trigonometry actually taken down by YouTube itself because it was against the rules. Now, the fact, the idea that COVID came from a lab may well have been leaked deliberately, etc. whatever you look at it, that's much more widely accepted, it's much more discussed. And this is why I was making the point to the gentleman earlier that we have to have, to be able to have the conversation without censorship. Otherwise, all you're gonna do is fuel more conspiracies that are gonna be outrageous and outlandish. Um, so that's it, thanks, Alistair. Constantine is obviously too young to remember Michael Fish. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, Would you explain that? Because I am too young. <laughs> BBC Weather Bowl, of course, they've got it spectacularly wrong. Oh, I see. Right. Um, someone asked, uh, are there, have any institutions been good or bad at, um, you know, countering these, these sorts of um, uh, theories? And I have, since the question was asked, I've been sort of sitting, trying, you know, thinking hard and taking notes and trying to remember what... And I don't think it's, it's something that institutions are very good at nowadays. In the past, in the, you know, I think in terms of the past, um, you know, institutions like the obvious one was the church, um, because that's where people turn to for truth. Um, but, and another one, I suppose, would be schools. People had trust in their teachers and, you know, further up in, in, uh, in universities. But the trouble is, so much of that trust has been eroded, not necessarily in terms of conspiracy theories, but thing, you know, scandals like um, you know, the child abuse scandals in the, in the church, which um, then erode your more general trust in, in the institution and in individuals within them. So I don't think you can look to institutions for this. I think you have to look to individuals or perhaps smaller groups, but institutions have failed us and failed us um, really quite catastrophically. Um, there, there may be exceptions, and I'd be very happy to hear of some, but that's how it seems to me. Maybe I'll come back to you later and ask what that means to come to individuals. Yeah, I think sure, that's yeah. a whole different question, yeah. and one that we maybe need to unpick. But Tim, anything that you quickly want to pick up on out of that last round? Um, <clears throat> I almost feel obliged to come back to trust uh, and authority again. Uh, Logic, because you placed yeah. that burden on my well, shoulders right Yes, I have, because I think it's important. Actually, it's related to the question, because you, you posed, uh, posed it to uh, Constantine about uh, rebuilding trust and the, uh, I guess, the folly of efforts to rebuild trust. 
uh, because they do almost always seem to involve uh, further regulations. Mm. Uh, they seem to involve, you know, key words like uh, transparency, you know, rendering politicians' affairs ever more transparent, rendering corporate affairs ever more transparent, just to make sure that everyone can see exactly what these people are doing. Uh, the thing is that that is the opposite of well, that, that, these measures are. Uh, are almost antithetical to, uh, to, to, what, to the project of encouraging or nurturing or cultivating trust, because that's not about trust. That's about uh, almost coercing or demanding that people behave in a certain way. You know, trust is a, like a, it, it's an act of faith. It's a, it's a hope that another person or a, a, at an institutional level that an institution acts or behaves in a way that you hope or expect it would do. That's not something that you can sort of force them to do. Like if, if any relationship requires a kind of uh, coercive bond in that sense, then it's not a, it's not a relationship based on trust anymore. It's, it's a relationship based on force. How you encourage trust, you know, that's a, I, I, I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that question. I know, the, I know how you do not encourage trust. I know how you foster and deepen mistrust. And that's why, and that's almost by precisely the kind of bureaucratic measures that people, are, well, that governments, institutions are trying to encourage trust. Also, there's the sense, sometimes you get the feeling, and Constantine has actually alluded to this, that um, in, institutions are almost sort of demanding that the public trusts them, mm. which, again, that's, it's not something you can demand. You know, trust is something, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship which is voluntary. Mm. Um, so you can't, it's not something that can be forced. Mm. Um, someone said, that's impossible. Okay. Just, I just heard it whispered in my ear. Did someone actually say that? <laughs> very, perhaps a very paranoid situation at the moment. Um, actually, there was something actually that Sean brought up. This is almost completely unrelated. Evil and the devil. Um, it, it, certainly, you know, 300, 400 years ago, conspiracy theories certainly had that uh, you know, religious theological, uh, theological component. You know, they kind of morph. You had conspiracy theories around the French Revolution. Um, where, again, a theological component, you know, blame it on the Illuminati and so on. But increasingly, conspiracy theories were secularized. And I think what's interesting now is that if you're looking for a force that uh, is blamed or uh, is shaping people's uh, actions almost behind the scenes, it's not evil in a theological sense. It's, it's kind of near secular synonyms right now. So it could be systemic racism. It could be uh, patriarchy. These kind of sort of impersonal kind of nefarious forces which mm -hmm. operate behind the scenes. And I think in, in some ways, evil persists in conspiracy theorizing, uh, but it, it, it's adopted a kind of secular form. Okay, thanks. Mm. William, anything that you quickly want yeah, to pick yes, up on, please. then we'll go out, come back straight back out. Yeah, thanks, honestly. Uh, yeah, um, first point, um, a very, very general point about authority, uh, a declining authority over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, probably. Uh, I think that just goes in ha hand in hand with with the loss of what John Gray calls the common life. It's late stage liberalism, it's where we are. There are pluses and minuses to that, but that's just where we are. People don't trust, take as read what they're, they're told now, and in some ways that's good. A really good question uh, by the gentleman on my left there, um, talking about lobbying and conflicts of interest, because we need to think about that, think about it carefully. Um, I mean, we're talking about conspiracy theories, but there are conspiracies, right? There are. I mean, people do conspire. And I'll give you an example, and I don't think it's a theory, I think it's just a, a reality. 
there's a conspiracy among house builders, major house builders in this, in this country, to take state sector capacity in house building off the table. They've successfully done it, and they, Tory housing policy is in the pocket of the house builders. Uh, if you do any research, you'll find this is the case. The last, actually the 2019 uh, Electoral Commission return on funds to the Tory party from the house builders, about 11 million. Uh, is that a conspiracy? I think it probably is. Okay, let's come back out, and uh, we need to speed up a bit, so maybe uh, a bit shorter points and questions now. I'm going to start there, come over there, and then we'll, we'll get everyone in. Don't worry. Hi. I just had two quick points. William, you mentioned one of the solutions was fact-checkers. Um, I, I said I was sceptical about them. Sceptical. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I'll just add to like, a lot of the people who are claiming these things are false are the fact-checkers. So like, the question was... Who checks? Who fact checks the fact checkers? Yeah, that, that's a great one. Um, and then just on the quick point on evil, um, I can't remember who it was, but there was a political theorist in the 20th century who introduced the concept of the banality of evil. Mm. And, and um, like most evil is just committed by an idiot bureaucrat who has no idea what they're doing. Um, and so I think it gives politicians and people in charge too much credit, and like I don't think they have the ability to actually create some kind of grand conspiracy, say. So. Okay. Can I think it's a really important point is like the banality of evil and just like not trying to overdo. My prediction is it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and the main reason for that is the constant tendency to um, suppress public discussion and censor unacceptable views, which is, as the person at the back pointed out, driving a lot of the um, conspiracies. The there's been a lot of discussion on the panel about, um, you know, the institutions want, you know, how are we going to rebuild trust in the institutions? But there hasn't been much discussion about the fact that this whole lack of trust is being driven by the lack of trust in us, the public, to do the right thing and to be rational, uh, sensible beings. And the, that, that is what is behind a lot of the justification for the censorship, after all. So this online harms um, bill that's um, been discussed and is probably going to go through Parliament, um, you know, that, that says that online we've got to stop porn and grooming and all the rest of it. But it also says that you've got to stop harmful disinformation and misinformation about vaccines and, and that we can't be trusted to read the information about the, the pros and cons of uh, the, the vaccinations and decide for ourselves. So as long as that continues, as long as they don't trust us, this, this constant uh, tendency towards conspiracy will get worse with terrible consequences. Okay, someone's got the microphone there. Can uh, you bring this one down? A quick, a quick point is I just wanted to compare how we, how we think of as uh, true and false in terms of uh, law and uh, how we do in society. For instance, you have two tests in the law, which was beyond reasonable doubt, which means that there are still doubts, but they're just unreasonable. And the balance of probabilities, which means that we'd normally have reasonable doubts. And I'm wondering if the whole fact-checker concept of the binary between the true and the false should be replaced with a concept of truthiness rather than truth. Um, just wanted to uh, build on a couple of points. I thought it was interesting when Tim was talking about how someone with a conspiracy theory or engaging in a conspiracy theory has um, a, a fixed mindset and isn't really looking for their mind to be changed necessarily. Um, but, but also this um, idea that we need to debate things and that the 
um, institutions and the, and the state and the government don't really trust us to be able to do that. But actually, isn't there also a question of us trusting ourselves? And um, there was a phrase used in an earlier session today around moral autonomy and being able to live with the consequences of what you decide to do. Mm. I wonder if the group um, speaking have any views on whether or not we have lost trust in ourselves as individuals and, and, and collective uh, of group. Yes. One, one of, well, two of the things that I found most difficult to contend with throughout the last 18 months is that I don't feel as though I'm any longer in a position to be able to believe that um, I'm going to get the true answer if that true answer isn't politically correct mm. to begin with. Now, you know, in, there was a lady over there who mentioned China. It's entirely possible that it was indeed leaked or it was an accident, but, you know, we, we can't do anything about examining that without first having to hear a whole cacophony of people going, but that's anti-Chinese. Well, if it's the truth, it's the truth. And the same, it's a point made in a different debate. I can't even trust my Prime Minister to tell me who has the cervix. <laughs> you know, who am I supposed to trust if the truth has to first fit politically correct thinking? Okay, good, thank you. Yes. Hi, uh, I'd like to ask the panel about incentivization of honesty in public figures. Mm -hmm. So, if I may be naive, maybe we should pity politicians because they constantly live in fear. You know, um, public figures are not allowed to say, in private, mind you, that they think certain Tories are scum. Um, it's this attitude of, how is this lying liar lying, lying to me that people like Jeremy Paxman used to have, where every single item is mined in order to create an attention-grabbing, rage-inducing headline, which means politicians are constantly forced to modify their speech, constantly turning to people like Alistair Campbell. Because they, how can they tell the truth when telling the truth is, um, is, is going to end your career? You can't be honest about how bad you are. You can't be honest about perhaps um, trying to reform the tax code because the sun will rip you out. So how are we going to incentivize politicians to actually tell the truth? Yeah, I'd like to suggest that the reason this huge hall is so full is not because of the comments of someone like David Icke or the pro propagators of QAnon or those sort of conspiracy theories. It's because over the last 19 months now, anyone who dares to question anything about the rise of the biosecurity state um, on Facebook, on Twitter, or any, any of the other social media, usually have something coming up saying, declaring that this is untrue and often denouncing it as a conspiracy theory. Um, conspiracy theories is a discourse. It's a discourse that says this can be considered and this is what is, cannot be considered. It's not about picking and choosing. It's a discourse of censorship and of saying what can and cannot be said. I'd like to propose three genuine conspiracy theories that I think we can all agree on. That the Medicines and Health Regulatory Agency, which is funded by the pharmaceutical companies, has any autonomy, doesn't have a conflict in interest in what it, what it authorizes for, for temporary use. That the government that over the last 18 months has passed over 500 statutory regulations removing our human rights and civil liberties under a politically declared emergency period has any interest in removing that emergency. Or that pharmaceutical companies, which in the case of Pfizer, expect to increase their already vast profits by 400% this year alone, are interested in our health. I think we can all agree that these are genuine conspiracy theories. 
But it's interesting theory is the discourse. And I think the gentleman on the right, on the, the second left here, by characterizing them as the beliefs of lunatics or nutters, or on the case here of someone who tried to pathologize it and saying it's a form of mental health, is representative of how the discourse of conspiracy theory works. Okay. Um, very quickly, still sounds really conspiratorial here to me, because, you know, as you said at the beginning, um, conspiracy theories are you know, uh, fantasies about people who have an agenda, who want to push something, who have a have nefarious uh, uh, yeah, plan to, to, you know, to, to do evil here. Um, but, uh, you know, the truth is far more boring and far more insidious. Nobody has a fucking plan, right? The, even the Vogue agenda is not an agenda, it's because they have nothing else. You know, there's absolutely no idea of politics the BBC is not lying to us, the media is not lying to us. They truly believe what they're doing is, is the correct thing. Bullshit. <laughs> right. no, okay. It's not a conspiracy. It's like, it's like they have no idea. It's like even the Iraq invasion was, was a dis... You know, why did they invade Iraq? Not because of oil, because they had no political... Uh, you know, a purpose for parties at the time. You know, they, it, it was a war of political legitimacy. So it's... You know, there's no conspiracy, it's just so boringly, boringly, boringly empty of everything. Okay, thank you. So, very, very quick points this time, panel. I know you want to say something on yeah. education, Sean. Do you want to keep Yeah, I want, I want to link three questions that were asked, and it's starting with the, the one, about, well, there wasn't a question, there was a comment, that most evil is done by idiot bureaucrats. It's not. I wish it were. It's done by people like us who think we're doing something good. When you look at all the examples of tyrannical regimes and the awful things that they do, the people, the individuals, which takes us to institutions, because institutions are made up of individuals, and individu you said about individual uh, trust, can we trust ourselves and responsibility? And the link with, these, with the schools is that a school, in the end, comes down to the individual teacher. And I speak as a, you know, as you heard, a former you know, teacher myself. And that, in the end, it's to each of us to maintain our commitment to truth. And therefore, the teacher marking the homework, even if the school's policy is don't sort of uh, you know, mark it right or wrong, defy it. Who will suffer if you do? In the end, the child will benefit, assuming that you're right. <laughs> and so it's not them, it's not others, it's not bureaucrats. In the end, it lies on each of us. And that goes back to the question earlier, that that is where I think um, you, know, you will find not institutions, but the people in institutions who can make a difference. Uh, three very quick points. So the first one is, I think, why is this important now? Why is it important that we have trust in institutions? Well, deep fakes are coming. If you remember that Matt Hancock ass on, hand on ass video, whatever, you, in five years' time, 10 years' time, you're going to be able to make that, a fake one that looks real. Right. So if by that point we don't trust the people who are giving us information, we're all screwed. So that's why it matters. Now, a couple of things. Uh, the gentleman here made me laugh a lot when he said we should incentivize politicians not to lie. Um, it's just like incentivizing your cat to go vegan. It's against nature. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I, I, think, I think what we need to do, and this is actually very important, we need to incentivize whistleblowers. Uh, whistleblowers, instead of being punished and hounded out and losing their careers, should actually be rewarded in some way for revealing actual nefarious practices. That's how, you, one final very quick point, that, that's how you incentivize politicians to behave. 
Uh, and the third point is, Tim, you were, you were talking earlier, if you don't mind me adding to something you were saying, you were talking encourage, trust, how do you do that? And it sounded to me like you were looking for a word. Well, I think that word is earn. You earn trust. That's the only way you get trust, is you earn it. And the way you earn it is by being honest. Okay. Tim, anything, just minor point? Uh, minor point? Uh, the question, the question of moral, quick, moral quick point. Uh, Not minor. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that's, uh, that's spot on. Uh, I think um, to the extent that uh, there is a widespread or pervasive mistrust uh, of people and among ourselves, uh, that does obviously undermine moral autonomy, undermines the, uh, our own moral autonomy, and also undermines the moral autonomy of others. Um, I think the, when we defend or talk of uh, moral autonomy, when we talk of uh, an individual's freedom to make, the dis uh, to, uh, make decisions for themselves, to uh, come to their own uh, moral judgments, uh, not, only, not only do we think of that about ourselves, we almost have to assume that everyone else is capable of uh, those acts of judgment, right? So, and, and that involves a certain amount of that involves a certain amount of trust. It's not that uh, you know that someone will act in a certain way, that they will, make, they will come to certain decisions or make judgments that you would agree with or that you would hope uh, that they, they would come to. It's, it's, an, it's a, like a minor act of faith. So I think you, to the extent to which we believe in, the, uh, in our own moral autonomy, we also have to start believing in others too. Um, and I think that's absolutely essential if we were to kind of rebuild at an interpersonal level any sense of trust. Yeah, um, a couple of things. So I'll take the point entirely uh, from the lady at the back. I think very, very often public policymakers and governments literally haven't got a clue what they're doing. Uh, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, projects to impose Western liberalism onto complex societies, ludicrous, utterly ludicrous. They literally didn't know what they're doing. Whether it was conspiracy, I, I, I don't know. I think it's probably just sheer incompetence. On, uh, another point was made about politicians and the difficulty of answering questions uh, and so on. Um, I look, look at the recent interview, I think it was Nick Ferrari interviewing Rachel Reeves uh, on the, the cervix question. Difficult question, you know, why should it be? Uh, and I think, I, I, I might even transcribe it. I mean, you know, she's a nice lady. She's also a very experienced politician who was torn apart by this basic question. And she, her, Rachel's response was sort of, um, ah, uh, is it all, you know, and it's literally, it was, it was cringy to watch it. And the solution is just to be bold and just to say no, that it's as simple as that. And, to, you know, Rod Little has a basic idea on this, on women. Women exist, and I've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I'm going to come out. Uh, I'd be interested, actually, on this, this, this mm. point you make about incentivized whistleblowers, mm. is that not corrosive of trust? Because if you're incentivizing someone to blow the whistle all the time, is that not creating a kind of general atmosphere of, of, of mistrust? No, no, no need to answer it. Maybe come back in the, in, in the final points. So I want to get everyone in who's got hands up. Yeah, I was thinking that historically uh, there were no newspapers, there were no pamphlets, people couldn't read. People believed all sorts of drivel, uh, monsters and gods and whatnot. And then we started to get standardization of truth with um, religious texts and then newspapers and then TV, and these were all owned by powerful people, and they standardised the truth, and they told us what to think. Now what we've got is the internet, where anyone can publish stuff. So all the drivel, I like to think of it as the collective unconsciousness of the world, is now visible. But that was always there. People always believed drivel. I did in my youth. I used to read stuff about aliens. Um, 
so what the media need to do is go up market. They need to start being responsible so that they can differentiate themselves between quality press and the drivel. And it really depresses me that many of our newspapers report Twitter storms as if they're fact, saying that this politician was criticised for doing this, when it was just a bunch of nutters on the internet. Hello. Yes. Uh, yeah. um, so I kind of want to say something from a slightly different angle over here. That's uh, When I was younger, I used to uh, like socialism and anarchism, those kinds of ideas. Then I learned about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to their uh, people, basically harvesting for their organs uh, on a mass scale. And so I then developed a real aversion and kind of hatred towards uh, socialism and communism, those kinds of things. And that then went and uh, reverberated on people who actually are socialist and communist, including my brother. And so uh, we've had a lot of conflicts over the year. We have a lot of uh, distrust between the two of us. And one thing that I found very uh, useful in healing that trust and actually uh, regaining it and re-establishing like a, a good, well-founded relationship between the two of us, despite our different points of views, um, is just treating him with respect, listening to him like a decent person okay. who has fair points of view. We both have common values. Uh, like he, he really cares for people who are suffering. I really care for people who are suffering as well. Um, maybe okay. we have a slight difference of opinion, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to share right. that. We need to be aware of what quick means in this, uh, quick <laughs> points means at this point. So very quickly, because we're not going to get hardly anyone Look, in. Uh, yeah, everybody... I do agree. It's very difficult to tell fact from fiction, especially at the moment when there's so, when there's so many different opinions on what's really happening. You can watch the BBC, and, and by the depiction of the BBC, it looks like the hospitals are overworked and they're very busy. But then I watch a video on BitChute and there's a video of a hospital that's empty. So how do I tell fact and fiction? Well, I have to go out and I have to talk to people. So this is so... I think we're at a time where communication is key and I think we all need to talk to, talk to each other a lot more about what our personal experience is. I think, okay. just as a recent example, I think no, I've, I've spoken to two, <laughs> said quick two at this ICU point. workers in the last couple of months and they've both told me the same thing, is that the beds were half empty over the course of 2020. So that just gives me some information. So I'm saying personal fact-checking is reliable. Right. Can you hand the microphone? Right. Okay, at the back. Yeah, just very quickly. I'm not sure that I'm... I mean, it's got a laugh, Constantine, but this idea of politicians being... Uh, like cats innately driven to lie. I mean, there isn't an, an important element of all of this discussion about conspiracy, the idea of a kind of fatalism that's infected so much of the way in which we think about our ability to act. I mean, it's not that politicians, and you, you, it's not like the kind of power corrupts in that sort of cliche way, but the problem is that politics today, that what, what, do, what politics do politicians engage in? I mean, there's all to do other than advance your career and you know lie a little bit along the way mm. but it's a bit it's a similar case of when you know people scratch their heads about how to deal with the conspiracies among incels rather than looking at the fact that it's not just that innately if a young guys don't get sex they turn into these kind of conspiratorial weirdos mm. there's the fact that there's nothing else going on in their life the keyboard warriors don't have and it's a problem of socialization mm. this is what frank said in the keynote earlier um yesterday about the crisis of our own identity picking up i want someone to pick up more on the what the woman said at the front about how we trust ourselves mm. and that really is the antidote to a fatalistic approach surely isn't it one area that I don't think we've covered very much is proximity and distance. So we've, we're talking about institutions. We've gone to Wuhan. We've gone to the west coast of America with, with uh, Facebook and so on. And um, we haven't talked about closeness and how I'm interested in your views on whether there's something about getting closer to people 
and whether institutions are too distant. So on the vaccine, uh, I think there's an important line to be drawn between who, who believes in conspiracies and who doesn't, because there are a lot of people who genuinely have concerns about the vaccine because they know it's a novel form of treatment, hence no one can be sure what the long-term implications are, and also people genuinely believe that their natural immunity is, is effective. So all of those people are asking some quite legitimate questions about the efficacy of the vaccine. They are not conspiracy theorists. On the other hand, there are others who take it a stage further and think that we are being deliberately injected with something to either cause us harm or to enable us to be tracked or think problems of that nature. That, it seems to me, are the conspiracy theorists because they have abandoned any desire to inquire into the truth and they are simply believing in some su almost supernatural for forces which are controlling us. All right, so I'm afraid this is going to have to be the last contribution before I come back to the panel for their final thoughts. Um, it was Hannah Rarant who talked about the banality of evil, and um, it got me thinking when Tim was talking about what evil is today, and I wondered whether you thought that actually we are now politically lonely in the way that she talked about, where we're actually too scared to say what we think because we might be perceived as evil um, by the person who receives what we... what. The, receives what we say. Okay, thank you. So, panel. Might be 30, se might be 30 seconds. Yeah, I think much of what we're talking about today uh, is actually about the democratization of publishing, isn't it? And everyone has the, the, the right now and the access and the means of publishing what we think on Twitter, on social media. So a lot of things will flow. Now, there are good things and there are bad things about that. Uh, some of the stuff I see on Twitter, I, I, I'm reminded of uh, Chris Hitchens' point about everyone has got a book in them, and largely that's where it should stay. <laughs> Thank you. Tim. I think one of the most sort of pernicious um, impacts or effects of uh, the conspiratorial mindset is that it does assume the worst of others, it assumes evil intentions or it assumes bad intentions on the part of others. Uh, and I think that is just kind of eaten away at public debate and political argument. So when, you know, I'm not particularly picking Constantine, but when he suggests that, you know, politicians, you know, in their very, you know, by their very nature, lie and deceive, there is just that assumption almost before the engagement that that person is therefore a kind of immoral actor. Um, and I feel that that, that this is something we almost have to start to overcome, this kind of attribution of the worst possible intentions to others. And it's fortunate it has flourished uh, during the pandemic. I think by and large, you know, that's a byproduct of the atomization, isolation forced upon us by the lockdown. But it's something we do have to start to overcome. We have to start to um, question by all means, but, you know, treat others uh, there's always that sinister laugh in the background when I, when I try to speak more optimistically, that kind of cackle of disapproval. But it's not just, no, not just politicians, I mean others. I mean the, the, the assumption that other people in the debate, your opponents or whatever, that they are motivated by the basest of intentions, that's just uh, incredibly unhelpful. We have to start, um, certainly from a position of good faith in political argument. Okay, thank you. John. Give us something to take away. I think distance probably does breed mistrust. It's an important one, but it needs more time. Um, are we too scared to say what we think? Well, a lot of what we've heard this weekend suggests that probably yes. I think a lot of people are. 
But the good news is, as I was saying that, you know, in the presentation at the beginning, is that if you apply normal rules of evidence, of checking, you know, reading, checking the footnotes, follow them through, um, the normal processes will work. You can put faith in, you know, the actual operation of reason and proper procedure. And if it is a genuine conspiracy, then that will find it out. And if it's complete fabrication, again, it will be found out. And that's how you find out the difference. It, in a sense, it's not rocket science. Put faith in ourselves, our operation of reason, and just do the research. Thank you. So, Constantine. Well, since both the co-conveners of the festival have picked me up on something, I said this may well be my last appearance at the Battle of Ideas. Um, no, I, no. I, I'm joking. Of course I'm joking. Uh, so on the whistleblowing point, I, I'll probably leave it for another time. Uh, I think uh, Ella's point is, is very good when she talked about me making fun of politicians and, and lying. I do believe it is an inbuilt function of politics that mass communication, mass persuasion requires dishonesty. Uh, politicians speak the way they speak to annoy as few people as possible and to convince as many people as possible that they agree with them. And that requires an element of deception. I don't think that is a fatal problem. That is a problem that we can manage as a society, provided we have an honest media. The same way that the system of law and the courts is a way of managing the, the authoritarianism of politics, people going too far down that line, the media are supposed to be the institution that prevents politicians from getting away with lying too much. And that's really the problem. So to me, politicians lying is not a big problem if it can be managed properly and if their lies can be exposed. The problem we've had in the last five years, the lies have not been exposed. Their lies have been amplified in many cases by the media uh, who are incentivized to do so. So that's my issue. I don't, I don't see the, the dishonesty of politicians as a, as a structural problem. What I would say, final point on that, is I think nobody could disagree with me that the caliber of politicians in this country has gone down tremendously in the last 20 years. Um, and it's not only the caliber, it's also the type of people. The people who used to go into politics were people of principle, people who would resign when something went wrong, who would resign when the government that they were a part of was doing something they didn't agree with. We don't have that anymore. We don't have people who will resign on a matter of principle anymore. And to me, that is a very important factor that I think plays into this. Could we thank the panel, please? Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.